My name is Mary Grace, and you're listening to the Homebody Podcast. Here, we explore embodiment as interstellar beings, practicing how to live more fully as creatures of both the stars and the earth. These spiritually and artfully minded conversations intersect astrology, creative practices, intuition, magic, healing, poetry, and a deep love for the natural world. My hope is to enliven you so we can co-create possible regenerative futures, to encourage you so together we can become dynamic agents of beauty, fully awake with our power intact. Let us be intentional as we approach the creation and caretaking of life, and let's make room for inquiry, sensitivity, and joy. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast. We are in the middle of the holiday season right now as this episode comes out, so I hope you are being well and finding access to what feels like embodied joy at this time in some way. I'm excited to bring you an episode from 2020, Back to the Front of the Feed. It is a conversation with the ever-exquisite Alkistis Demek. It is the most downloaded episode on the podcast. And at the end of this year, it echoes and holds so many sentiments and conversations that I just never tire of hearing again and reiterating for you. It is also personally one of my very favorite conversations that I have had the pleasure of having on the show. Alkistis Demek is a writer and an artist whose works primarily with the body and dance. Her practice is grounded in Buto, and her work explores the occulted dimensions of the body and its subtle anatomy as an archaeology of the flesh, drawing from the esoteric and phenomenological traditions, and seeks to unfold a process of bodily spiritual transformation. With Peter Gray, she is the co-founder of Scarlet Imprint, which is an independent press that publishes practitioner-oriented works on the occult and esotericism and magic. And Alkistis has performed in the UK, in Europe, and also in the United States, both solo and in collaboration with musicians and other artists. Spoken on her practice, given workshops at conferences and events internationally, you can find selected works from 2008 to 2018 that are documented in The Brazen Vessel, which you can purchase from Scarlet Imprint. And in this conversation, we discuss the daimonic space, what it means to interact with what she calls the occulted body, and how the body holds magic and is an ever-unfolding landscape before us in the dance that is life. It is rich, it is beautiful, it is light and dark, all of the things, and Alkistis brings so much knowledge and present and magic to everything that she does. So I hope that you will enjoy the episode. Be sure to check out the links below for more on Alkistis and her work and Scarlet Imprint, as well as free resources and other maps to things that come up during the episode for quick reference. I encourage you to listen with your whole body, to share the episode and the conversation if it speaks to you, and most of all, enjoy. I ask people to start by just telling us their name, introducing themselves, and kind of how they identify in the world and what they do with their time and their explorations. Would you mind sharing that with us? Um, yes, of course. Thanks for inviting me on, Mary Grace. It's really lovely to be talking to you. 
Um, my name is Alkis Destemak, and I'm a dancer and choreographer, and I work within the lineage of Bhutto, which is um, a, a dance form that I've been um, practicing since 2002. Uh, I'm also a publisher and a writer, and uh, I have a publishing company called Scarlet Imprint, which publishes esoteric and occult-themed work. Um, that, that's what I do in the world. I don't have much time for a lot else. That's plenty. <laughs> that's quite a lot, actually. Um, do you mind sharing briefly how you found Bhutto and how the beginning of that practice happened for you? Um, yes. I, I've always been interested in theatre since I was um, a teenager and I discovered the works of Antonin Artaud, um, the theatre and its double particularly, but um, all of his writings had made such a deep impression on me. So I wanted to be an artist and I thought I would be like working, um, say, painting or something. But this kind of opened up my world and I started thinking about theatre and thought I would become involved um, sort of in a behind the scenes, like not not an actor, but a director. And as it happened, so I, I studied um, the 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 sort of history and uh, of art and architecture and music of um, Asia and Africa at university because I was interested in these sort of uh, like Balinese dance and so on. And I sort of took a few courses and I came across uh, in things like Thai dance, for example, or Cambodian dance. And I came across uh, in a book in the library, the writings of Hijikata Tatsumi, who was like one of the two people credited with um, instigating Bhutto along mm. with Kazuo Ono. And the writings just uh, just opened me up incredibly and, and affected me very deeply. So a couple of years later, I had the chance to see a Bhutto performance. And that's when I just realized I had to do it. And I, I don't know how long it took after that for me to find a course, but there's a, a teacher who was based in London uh, called Mary Gabrielle Roti, who was organizing uh, for dance like a Bhutto masters to come over to England and to give workshops so I started training uh, by attending these workshops and just um, I, it was like an immediate uh, something really really connected deeply and I haven't stopped <laughs> that's that's kind of how it happened how it started yeah there is a magic about it for mm. sure mm. Um, and you also practice magic and what are some of the ways that you would say that your magic practice and your dance practice intersect? I think because I came particularly to Western magic after I had been dancing for some time, that I experienced such a, an embodied understanding of everything I do and nothing is disconnected from my body so the body was always first so everything that I could understand had to be through a process of doing it and physically like having an embodied approach to everything so as I learned more about western magic I just I sort of saw the dance in it and saw where the dance had been left out or where any consideration of the physical body had been left out of particularly Western magic. So a lot was of my approach has been to sort of get beyond a lot of the sort of very uh, 
written and and head-oriented approach of Western magic for the last 200 years or so, whatever the, the Enlightenment um, sort of Cartesian dualism that's been in play for this time, and to find something that was a more embodied and more animist, uh, something in which the environment and the body are part of a continuum, so that the transformations that are within oneself, the sort of inner transformation and the inner landscape, your your inner world affects the outer world and is affected by it. So magic has always been, for me, this process of uh, dialogue between these worlds. And particularly, I'm interested in how things transform um, or how things move from different uh, fields of consciousness, from dream into the material world and back again, and and how things manifest and come into being out of this nothingness, or out of this pure chaos, this pure erotic chaos of nature that we're all part of, we're not separate to. Indeed. And I feel like from my own experience with Bhutto that, that is very aligned, that the process of mm. dance, that the process of performance is itself a vessel for alchemy, a, a vessel for mm. something to arise or transform or mm. to channel. And I feel very complimentary in that way. Is that your experience? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, the whole process of Bhutto begins with this um, losing that I that we habitually, you know, use to navigate through the world and to do all the normal stuff. And this is such a, it's such a construction as well. It's such a creation that we use to, to cope with situations we wouldn't otherwise be able to cope with or just to do very, very prosaic things that enable us to survive or interact. And it's not actually who we are. There is no singular I. And I think... The first steps in Bhutto is beginning to lose this idea of oneself and to, to, to dig deeper, to go into the darkness in the body and to find those other selves, those other eyes, whether that's part of a, an ancestral line, whether that's part of a, you know, a, a sort of a, a saintly line that you identify as um, important to you, whether that's all of the creatures and all of the the elements that make up your body and your self, then out of this, the possibility to have other other consciousnesses and other other awarenesses flood into the body because you've uh, neutralized some of that surface mm, survival self. <laughs> yeah, I find that and. Um, and it's an ongoing process. There's, there's always more to discover. I don't think in one life you can really ever, you know, descend to the absolute depths and discover everything. There is still so much to keep, because it is not over. Just it's not even just uh, this discovery of things already there, but this uh, becoming of things that are latent, that are possible in us, and this ability that through being alive, we have to actually change, to change ourselves, to bring other things through, to allow other voices to speak through us. And I think there, Bhutto and magic 
and mysticism intersect very strongly. Yes, I agree. And that kind of brings up, you have a term that you work with and that you've developed for the occulted body, which is mm-hmm. kind of a way that you talk about these consciousnesses and also just literally the things that we can't see that are inside mm-hmm. of us yeah. and the practices that kind of bring those forth through revelation or like another way of knowing. And it's um, kind of subverting our... Um, are more enlightenment based or mm-hmm. ego based or are we just like over prioritize the consciousness of the mind, I think, or I think discourse was the way that you were like the language of yeah. discourse and talking and written language. And would you mind just expounding a little bit on the occulted body and some of mm-hmm. the consciousness that you, that's latent in there for you? Sure. Of course. Um, I I talk about the body as an occulted body because I was trying to find, I, I'm kind of dissatisfied with a lot of the way that um, since the magical revival, um, a lot of the ideas of the, say, subtle body have been, are still very much, uh, let's say, they still maintain those structures where you have like the mind and the body and you have this sort of dualism. So mm-hmm. I, I can't see a break. I can't see that there is my body and then a subtle body that is somehow different to that because the subtle body emerges out of the physical body. It's, or even, even more crazily enough, the physical body emerges from like the subtle body when you're an egg and you're just like one cell and the pattern is already there uh, where all the different cells will split and become like whatever part of the body they are. So there's a there's so much power latent in even this first cell in our first sort of moment of existence and the occulted body for me is an expression that captures both the fact that we can't see most of what our body is most of our we see our skin and we don't even see much of that in contemporary you know the contemporary west we're we're covered most of the time and so it, even like this knowledge of our surface is limited, let alone the knowledge of what lies beneath the skin. Um, there's a, a French phenomenologist and philosopher whose work I find very, very intriguing, although I have uh, problems with some aspects of it, uh, called Michel Henry, and he said it, uh, in one book, no one has ever seen a body. And I this I, I really understood how he... Un, how how we can see people but not see the body and that what the body actually is is something so much deeper and so richer and people are not really exploring it. On the one hand, there's a sort of a a fantasy of what one is doing with one sort of like subtle body work and energy work and very sort of tenuous ideas that are very hard to pin down or to, to talk about. And a lot of ideas that have been imported from, for example, um, India, like yoga and uh, like Tibetan uh, esoteric body ideas. And they've been incorporated into this melange that, of uh, Western esotericism and made general. And I'm much more interested in the specific. So um, as a woman, particularly, I found that none of these uh, schemas of the body were uh, focused on a female body, but like the male body is the the basis, and already there's a huge problem there because uh, 
there are many different bodies <laughs> and everyone is individual, although we share, we all share male and female alike, sort of deeper commonalities. And I do think that the occulted body is a hermaphroditic body. It has this, it has, it contains both the male and the female, even if um, these expressions are of, of sex or gender are mm, altered in different individuals or, or stronger in different individuals. So the occulted body just contains everything we can't see. I'm particularly interested in the connective tissues and the fascia uh, because it holds everything together. So it's literally our, our form is created by this. And the fascia is actually everything from the skin down to the bones and into the viscera, the, the visceral organs. So our entire body is made out of this um, connective tissues. And they are made out of um, water in this crystalline state, a liquid crystalline structure. And it has these remarkable properties. So it, it is like the property of the water to have um, an electromagnetic quality. So we are not just like this physical object. We're not just a, a, a body. We're also this luminous thing and this dark thing and this thing that feels and, and sees into the dark. and. The idea of the occulted body for me is this step into acknowledging how deep the body really goes and that we need to, each of us as individuals, move and take the first step into this body because it's only by going into your own body that you really learn, that you really know what something is, that you can feel what, it, uh, what it's like when your chakras, for instance, light up and where they are, and how you experience them, and what this uh, internal landscape is like, and how the energy moves through you, and how it is connected with emotion, and how it is connected with memory. And, and it's, um, it's, it's really a turbulent and, and visionary space as well. So I guess with the term, I really wanted to make it apparent how much I think the body isn't seen, but how much lies within it, occulted. Did I go on too much? There's so much to say here. There is. No, I love it. I, and it's like, I feel like there's also like, um, it's not possible to explore the occulted body through the discourse, through the processes through which we explore what is seen about our bodies. Like there has to be another language learned. There has to be an appreciation for a different kind of knowing. Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree. And I think that this work going into the occulted body brings the, another language out. It's, um, I don't think we'll find a way to renew our language without doing this embodied work. And I think that work itself will force us to, 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 to break the old structures within language. And I think this is why it's, um, the body itself is autopoetic. It makes itself. It's always made itself. It's the way that you can see someone who spends their life dancing is a dancer and someone who spends their life um, building is a builder and they are, their muscles develop to do these things. And it's also the same with language. It's, we, we have to bring this uh, poesis into it. And the body, I think, is the way to, to make those changes to to bring a more creative and a more poetic sense to the 
the way we speak and the way we think about things. It's like the a, a way of beginning to mend these breaks between beings, between our consciousness and the consciousness of the other things that share the world with us. Yes, I think it it brings to mind when you're saying that, like the mending of also um, the way of knowing that most other things on the planet already know and the way that we are a part of the earth and not separate from the earth. Mm. It's like a way of relearning to speak the language that it already does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being able to hear what other things are saying as well, being able to Mm -hmm. um, just observe and and uh yeah participate without it's like uh, when one does a, a ritual or one dances or one goes into nature it's this not taking all your expectations with you and ignoring what's already there because something is already there and but actually going there with us uh with an openness without an expectation without all your baggage so one of the things that first attracted me to dance was that it was an art form that didn't need anything. You can dance with nothing. There's, there is no, there's nothing to stop someone dancing. It's not like you need an easel or paints or even a pen. You need nothing. And I love this purity of it. It was the original uh, attraction to me for dance. was just that anything that got between me and it, uh, some expression of allowing the body to just find movement and so when I painted, I would, I wanted to like, I don't know, like ravage the canvas and, and throw paint at it. It was very physical. And I realized actually I need to dance because <laughs> my body just wants to express something that it needs to express through movement and not through any other medium. And mm-hmm. um, I love that about it, the purity of it. So to go somewhere and to listen and to allow oneself to respond to that, to not be the first person to speak in an environment, but to allow the other voices to emerge before you contribute something to it. Um, yeah, and I think dance is an incredibly pure way of participating in that that big play of life. I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think that with this listening and this will, this relearning I feel like especially western civilization we have occupied this role of dominating the world instead of appreciating or cooperating or even submitting to the the earth and the way that things move and there's a trajectory with that that very much also aligns with the domination of the female body and yeah. there's a sort of like inherent alliance I think oh. I think there's magic in all bodies. I'm I'm really r- reluctant to attribute it to like one half of humanity or one one half of like embodied beings. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are and by qualities. feminine I mean like ungendered. Yes, yes, yeah. But there yeah. are qualities in the feminine which are I think fundamental to magic and this the ability to create, to bring things forth, to generate. Uh, is very important. The fluidity, something very feminine. Um, but it's also like the the masculine qualities that we have too are are also important in this. Like, mm, I don't know. Like, uh, you could 
I sometimes I think these are cliches, like you know, saying will or intentionality is a male quality because mm-hmm. I think that's also female as well. So, um, yeah, there there are things in the feminine that I think are inherently magical, but there are also things in the masculine that I find inherently magical too, and there are different ways of doing things. But I do think that if people nurture all these qualities within themselves, that their magic is more effective that they can do more maybe (laughs) yes Mm. no that makes so much sense Mm. I mean I I I only really speak from my own personal experience so I don't like to impose what I found on like some sort of a generality but um yeah I, I I like to also cultivate what are considered male qualities too simply because I don't see why not, <laughs> but but a lot of magic is to do with listening and to, to do with being receptive and being able to hear what what other voices are saying and mm, and I can think of many 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 male dancers that are able to do that. So I don't think it's something that belongs only to female bodies, but it is a feminine. It is a kind of feminine or androgynous or even hermaphroditic, it's something that combines between the two, some magic when you you unify these energies within your own um, body. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, I think that the, the imagery, the term hermaphroditic feels um, the most whole, I think, Yeah. Um, when you're describing it. Yeah, I don't like to sort of slip into cliches and things. A dancer whose work... I adore Carlotta Riqueda. Unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago, but she described a kind of eroticism that was neither male nor female. And I think for me, magic is very, very much intrinsically related to this eroticism, which is neither explicitly male or female. It's not gendered in that way, but it's actually a combination of both or it precedes them or it proceeds from both of them being unified and there are many ways that one can do that but I think this pure eroticism is the magical thing and our ways of finding it our ways of um, working with that in our bodies and in our lives are, are what we're here to discover perhaps yes I think that would definitely be a big component to it you've talked a lot about um in your writing about this need for rewilding witchcraft especially in kind of the face of the apocalyptic world Mm. that we're living in what about witchcraft needs rewilding for you um oh that was a an essay by my partner peter gray but um he also very much expresses my feelings about this too. I think there was a period when witchcraft became quite uh, tame in some ways. Uh, It was looking for acceptance um, uh, as, as being like part of the sort of discourse of proper religions and things. I don't personally see witchcraft as a religion, but as a practice. It's things you do. It's very hard to define witchcraft except as and it could be the most normal things that you do it's if you knit your knitting can be witchcraft if you uh, grow plants and work with plant 
materials. That's witchcraft, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be in so many things, um, anything, any work you do with your hands, uh, creating things, making dolls, puppets. Uh, um, this is witchcraft, and it's how you do it. Making food it can be witchcraft. Um, but so, so for me, witchcraft is fundamentally like the things that one does and, and a particular way of doing them and speaking charms while doing something and combination of particular materials at certain times for the effect one's looking for. Um, so the rewilding aspect is also part of this disengagement from the monoculture particularly, so that witchcraft isn't something where one is signaling something by um, by participating in a, a sort of monoculture idea of what a witch is, but more it's just what you're getting on with. You're down in the garden and you're digging and putting things in and nurturing things. You're speaking to plants and speaking to animals. Um yeah, there's, it's it's like that. So I think the first steps of the rewilding witchcraft idea is is really this reconnection to the world, to the web of life, and less oriented towards social acceptance. And also, I, for a while, there was a lot of like in a Wicca, for instance, particularly. There's the idea of the um, the the law of return, so that if you curse, for instance, it'll come back to you three times as strong. And yeah. this is obviously a nonsense. Of course, cursing is dangerous. And it's something one should do with a lot of uh, caution. But these laws are like the, these are not the laws of nature. And witchcraft operates according to the laws of nature. So it's also this acceptance that the witch has the power to curse as well as the power to heal. And I think it was this that's really behind the idea of the rewilding of witchcraft as well. Yes, I believe you used the word earlier um, when describing kind of the occulted body. I think you used the word tumultuous, I think. And mm. when you said that, it just reminded me of like weather and just getting yeah. back to the, yeah, literally the laws of the things that create the tumult or the storm. Mm. Yeah, we, we live in a very weathery place um, in, in Cornwall in England. So a lot of the work we do is directly with the weather and the elements. And it's, yeah, it's also a recognition of the power of these forces um they're much stronger than us so rewilding will also encompass this recognition of the dangers inherent in working with forces which are greater than us and knowing how to do things just knowing how to it's another kind of embodied knowledge embodied techniques and that encompasses all those things it's not bookish at all it's very much a, a lived practice Yes, and like a, a connected practice um, to those spaces. I was loving the conversations you were having about the role of daemons or diamonds or demons and mm. kind of breaking down that word more. And I feel like that the way that you think about that role is also talks a lot about liminality. You do a lot of mm. work with the in-between and the liminal. And um, do you mind talking about the role of the daemon or diamond and okay. a little bit more about the kind of key concept of liminality? 
Uh, okay, yes. Um, and if it's too big, just choose your favorite part of what I said. Okay, <laughs> I'll see. I'll see where this goes. Um, well, there's um, when Christianity became the sort of uh, religion of empire, and I mean this is very very simplified, but you know the old gods were transformed into demons at the sort of beginning of this process, um, which isn't to say that there aren't demons because there are, and there are spirits which are very strong and spirits that you'd probably be better to avoid working with. But also the demon, the word demon comes from daimon, the Greek daimon, which is this um, figure that is it, it's like the angelic, like the angel, the daimon and the angel are both figures which are uh, inhabit that space between us and divinity. So they move between realms and they have they're part of this um, um, say architecture of communication that exists that enable us to speak with what is beyond us to allow us to speak with what we can't speak with directly. So this um, this is a very important element within my dance practice because when I dance and I think of the performance space, this circle of the dance or the stage, where one moves, where one um, where one's body holds the space and defines that space, that becomes a daimonic space because that space is now not just the sort of everyday space of normal life. And it's not like um, the, the, the realms above, but it's something that can approach that, that also attracts the attention from different dimensions as well, from the upper or the lower realms, uh, depending what the purpose of the, the performance or ritual performance is. Um, so the daimonic is, for me, this liminal space that you create through performance and the ability to then speak with those other spirits. So, um, for example, when I did the performance, which was to do with uh, invocating uh, the invocation of Colette Peignot, she's um, a human. She's a deceased human. So I wanted to invoke her spirit, but I want, but it's uh, more than just sort of uh, with the performance. It's not uh, supposed to be. Ah, oh, here's a a representation of Colette Peignot. I wanted to bring the energy and what she had expressed through her writings, which have been very influential to me, into the world again. So I wanted not so much to look like her or to be her as a, as a performance as such, but I wanted to bring those qualities that I had so connected with in her work into the present because she's barely known. She was the lover of Georges Bataille and one hears always about his ideas and never about her and how interrelated their ideas are, um, especially their writings on the sacred. So this daimonic realm is also the realm where the sacred can be manifested in our lives. So the performance space is also this sacred space where the fullness of the sacred is permitted to exist. So it's not uh, simply, uh, I mean, this is a 
following the ideas of Bataille and Peignot, the sacred and the, the, the College de Sociologie, which they were part of, and uh, with Roger Caillois and several others. The sacred isn't just the, um, the pure white, you know, church sacred. It's also the sacre gauche or the sacre noir. And this is the, the sort of the sacred that is beyond, the, the, the sacred that is disgusting, the sacred that is shocking, the sacred that is, you know, erotic and violent and dirty. It's all the things that have been excised from uh, conventional religion and ideas of purity. So it's finding another, another state. So the daimonic is also a realm in which this can be, we can, uh, let's say, relate to this quality of the sacred and find it in ourselves and immerse ourselves in it without danger or without as much danger as there would be if one was to, you know, inhabit this character in normal life, you know, you couldn't walk down the street you, and, yeah. and in, in, <laughs> in a regular time, but there are times of festival or times where there is a, and in certain performances where one can bring these qualities through. And I think it's uh, part of life is in accepting all aspects of life, the dark as well as the light. And Bhutto is very much a dance that does not deny the darkness, but explores the darkness and, and resolves it with the light. So if I get back to the idea of the daimonic, it's that it's a realm where you can have this betweenness, where you can explore the world between what it is to be um, a human being made of flesh that, that is always in a process of decay and becoming, and the realm of like infinity, the realm of ideas, the realm of the imagination, which is much more enduring and much more well, that's inhabited by creatures that aren't limited by the physical body in the way we are, but also don't share the possibilities that we share. So there's a, the exchange goes both ways. Um, one can give something of one's body and one's experience of, of being a, a creature of sensuality and, and movement and feeling to that other world as well. And it also deepens I'm probably going on too much here, but it no, deepens it. This, this exchange with these other intelligences or consciousnesses also deeply, profoundly affects one's sense of one's body. So when one is, it's, uh, I guess, like being possessed. I'm not sure that this is the right terminology, but it's been used and I have used it in the past. But this being inhabited or touched by another consciousness is a really profound way to alter one's awareness of oneself and to actually part, uh, to, to, to go further into this process of transformation that I personally am particularly interested in pursuing through the body. briefly interrupting this episode to let you know about a special offer that I want to make available only for podcast listeners. Providing a discount code for one of my new online workshops called Purpose, which is full of teaching, 
meditation, illustrations, and prompts to help you authentically plug into your unique purpose and understand it more fully, both in the archetypal sense, but also in the practical sense, as well as helping you see your own unique gifts that you bring to the world and identify where in the grand scheme of life you long to shine. When we're connected to our purpose, we connect to a deeper sense of power inside of ourselves. And when we feel lost or unsure about who we're here to be, our purpose is a lighthouse or a compass. These workshops are here to help you engage with the spiritual, the mythological, and the stories that help us frame ourselves and our lives into healing so that you can ask the big questions and be visionaries for the future while living life with more power, more skill, and more grace. You can use the code GUIDE, that's G-U-I-D-E, all caps, when you go to my website, mgallardice.com forward slash programs. That's M-G-A-L-L-E-R-D-I-C-E.com forward slash programs. And you can find access to the Purpose Workshop there and enter the code at checkout. Let's get back to the episode. It feels like also just another mode of conversing with what is occulted. And since our bodies are manifest and even a great part of our bodies are occulted, but this kind of daimonic exchange through the sacred or as sacred is yet another way of letting that be a part of our consciousness or become our consciousness and our language. Yes, 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 exactly that. It's... um part of exploring these possibilities that we hold within ourselves that just get um, overlooked or never even acknowledged as being part of us. So it's, it's part of our potential for speech with other intelligences that isn't just made out of words, but communication. Communication is so important. And it's, it's another one of the deep motivators for dancing. It's, it's a way of communicating with other people without any restrictions on language or without any restrictions on how a behavior should be and to to find a really um, deep space of connection with others, many others. Yes. Yes, I definitely relate to the act of dancing very much as a daimonic exchange Um, Um, and making dance and perform, even practicing or... um, mm. It always feels very much like a channeled exchange and Mm. even the act of, you know, taking an idea and putting it into your body or communicating with an idea through your body is very, it feels like a very daimonic exchange, like from spirit to body and then back into spirit. And I've had people, I mean, even in the space of performance, it's like, how do you know it's done? It tells you. You know, like it's, it tells you when it's done, it knows when it wants to finish. And there's Mm. a deep listening, I think, and um, communication, sacred communication, like what you're saying, that's just inherently a part of that process. Yeah, I think, I think many of us are already doing this. We're just, I think that's just, we can bring so much more attention to this process and so much more um, uh, just attention to the experience of doing this so that we can do it more or take it further. It's, but I think it's it's partly an innate thing that we do anyway. It's part of the way we have a sort of an intercorporeal semantics, and we're. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you now, and I can't see you, but this is um, 
what we're normally when we're speaking with people, we are seeing the body and responding to movements and micro expressions and the tone of voice and things. So there are so many ways we communicate that is separate to the sort of meaning of the, the phrases and things we say. So I think dance heightens that ability to communicate and to to do something we do anyway. And everyone has this potential. It's just that we can we can take it further always. Right. And like bring more um, depth by bringing more awareness or intention. Mm -hmm. You were speaking about being really fascinated with an idea from Plato's, like this idea of hora. And Mm -hmm. yes, would you mind sharing a bit about what that is and why it's important to your work? Um, It was uh, Plato's work, uh, the hora he talks about in Timaeus and it's a really, really curious book. Um, when I was looking at the work of the occulted body, and I found like a lot of ideas within Bhutto are grounded in an, a sort of Asian or Japanese thinking, but I found in the idea of the horror something that the Western tradition had, like back at its inception that is very similar to these ideas of an in-betweenness. So the horror is like this sort of matrix, this uh, space of uh, the mother or, or the genetrix of life. And only and its, its essence is pure movement. So the essence of the horror is that it's always moving, but you can't see it and it isn't a thing. And I found this fascinating, especially in relation to the connective tissue, which is also the essence of the connective tissue is that it is always in movement and it's, it, it exists in order to move and to create movement. So I found a lot of resonance between these ideas and it was um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is to knit together again the, this idea that the West doesn't have a tradition but only, you know, only the East has something to teach us. But if we go back to the sources of our tradition, we find a lot of, uh, you know, very, very curious materials. So you find references to um, sort of sexual magic in the church fathers and ideas of the Kundalini or the the spinal serpent. Um, You find this in Plato too. And it was like looking back there and finding these things and trying to understand that there have been a lot of different ideas of this um the subtle body or the the occulted body in the west as well as in the east and to try to find something that relates uh, try to find some way to bring these things together because we have so many things in our tradition that are overlooked um a lot of interesting material in like uh, mystical thinkers like Swedenborg and Paracelsus, an alchemist, also looking at the different bodies we have, this multiplicity of bodies. So the idea of the horror for me is that it it is both a space out of which things emerge, which always interests me because um, as an artist, you're always trying to find that space where the thing will come through the unexpected thing, the unknown thing, the thing that you're reaching beyond yourself all the time. And this is the horror. And 
to find a way to find the horror in your body. In, in Plato, it's related to the liver. He specifically relates it to the liver and in the human body because the liver was the divinatory organ. It was the organ when a sacrifice was made that you would, uh, of an animal, not a human, um, I think. Um, you would read the, the liver because it was like a mirror. It was smooth and glossy and um, if it's healthy. So you would um, read this for, for reading a fortune or for divining something important. It was like the most important form of divination in the ancient world. So I found like it's the horror's connection with the liver and with divination. And I see that connection also with the connective tissues. Um, it's part of this seeing clearly. So a lot of the movements I do, like just um, warm-ups and, and and like cooling down movements and rehabilitation or whatever, like the shaking movements and the spinal waves and things, is actually a way to polish this mirror and to see more clearly um, into that other world, to experience more, uh, a more luminous body. Um, and it does, it does, it does really, really light up the more one, one works like this. I've definitely, I mean, I've always been hyper sort of kinesthetically aware, let's say, and I'm sort of very empathic and sensitive and things, but the more I've deliberately worked with these movements and with these sort of energetic, um, practices, have found a huge amount of space opening up in the body and being able to, like a, a landscape, like worlds, and finding sometimes the light is on them and they, they, they light up and I can sort of navigate and work through particular parts of my body, like within, and other times it will be another space or I can move. Uh, it's like almost... Um, having whole ecologies within yourself and, and uh, weather and meteorological movement within and finding these kind of uh, experiencing these movements within you and the way that some things grow and come to life and then they fade again. And it's really, it's really fascinating. So for me, the horror is another way to think about this mystery of the body that is able to it's always latently there, but it's able to produce and out of seemingly nothing, just a new, new feelings, new, new vistas, new, new visions. Um, yeah, it's quite a visionary thing for me as well. Yeah, the emergent quality, like always something mm. is being made. Um, yeah. Yeah. You've talked about your practice connecting to this, and I think you've touched on it briefly earlier to like an erotic eschatology mm -hmm. in a sense. Do you mind telling okay. us a little bit more about that and what that looks like for you and your practices? Um, I'm, I'm very aware that we're here for a limited time that it's a kind of, it's a sort of the theological underpinning of everything I do is based on this erotic eschatology, which for me is connected to a figure from the book of Revelation by John the Divine, um, which is the final book of the Bible and has had a huge influence on 
all of the, the Western tradition since and in, this impact on the rest of the world through it, um, through imperialism. It's a, a figure in there, the whore, uh, the harlot of Babylon, who became the sort of archetype for, um, how can I say, like a, a sort of a modern goddess. So she's become a figure within Thelema and actually outside Thelema now because I'm not, I'm not a Thelemite and I don't relate to her within within that kind of a um, structure of thought or or their theology. But she's very important to me because she represents everything that has been suppressed in women and everybody and men as well by extension because if something is suppressed in one sex it's going to be suppressed across everything. And those qualities, those feminine qualities are also going to be uh, suppressed um, in everybody and in life. So, and it's not even that she just represents the like quote unquote bad things, but she really represents for me the totality of what we are. Um, there's the... Uh, another thing which is also very important for my my personal practice, um, both magical and also artistic, which is she's called the mother of abominations as well as of harlots. And the abominations are um, both the offspring of the the um, how is it the, the the meeting of the fallen angels with the daughters of men, but they're also the idols that are worshipped by. The, the bad people. So within, within this figure of the harlot of Babylon, there are so many ideas tied up of things which are very important to me. Um, first of all, this, like the full erotic potential that we have as humans, and especially like the female erotic, which is a really wow and unlimited. And also idolatry, the idea that we make things with our hands and we can we can give life to statues and and work with these energies in forms. So um, my body is very important to me as to work with as like the sort of primary focus for this work, but we also have um, a, a sculpture of the the Harlot Babylon that becomes a sort of a, a repository for all of the work we do with her and offerings and so on. So it becomes a focus. And I think if one needs these um, foci in order to, 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 to harness the energy and to hold it as a repository of these energies and petitions, this interaction continual with the other world. So the idea of the fallen angels and the the uh, mixing of the species between the human and the angelic is very interesting. And she represents all these things, this, uh, these encounters that transgress, that go beyond the limits, where the human is no longer simply human, but be becoming angelic. And where the angel is not something that is um, uh, far away from us, but actually within us and around us and in communication with us. Um, so for me, this communication, it is sexual, it is, it is magical, it is spoken, it is speech, it's in the breath, because when one, when one speaks incantations, one is, 
one is harnessing this, you know, um, promiscuous breath and and sending it out to the spirits, to the to the angelic realm, to the demonic. Um, so the eschatology that I spoke about, this erotic eschatology, is for me a way to move beyond the limiting, um, quite male eschatology that we've been like given through Christianity, which is very harmful to us because it says there's an end time, everything ends. It's like the um, it's like the male orgasm. After that, you have like a period where after the orgasm, you can't have sex again. Women can infinitely repeat potentially to have an orgasm. They can, and the, the intensity of the orgasm increases each time. So it doesn't, it doesn't fade in the same way that the male orgasm does. And so I see this erotic eschatology as this potential to keep bringing life through and to keep, and the energy to keep arising and the spring where the energy, the source of the energy doesn't diminish. Whereas the eschatology, which I find is very limiting and damaging in like, that is still, despite our sort of mostly secular culture, at least England is pretty secular. Um, it still inherited this sort of Christian eschatology, which says that there will be an end times and God will judge you and you will go to heaven or you will go to hell and you have to live this way. And it's very, it's very destructive. It's very destructive. It, it, it makes us suppress so much about ourselves. It doesn't make us explore all of our potential. It's... Um, yeah, I was raised Catholic, so it's my way of um, approaching what I was given as a child, against my will, but it's still part of my heritage, and it's the heritage of my my family and my ancestors, many of them. So it's a way for me to absorb that into my body and and challenge it and change it. So Babylon, for me, is a figure that transforms this negativity with her joyful jouissance, her exuberance, her her, her pure erotic pleasure and outflowing of this these these waves of pleasure that I think is at the heart of nature because nothing in nature is is so mean as this sort of economic system we have now everything is so like miserable or oh, you cannot have fun because you should be working and if you're having fun then you're you're obviously not going to be as productive in the office this sort of idea where in fact the more one dances the more energy one has. And it, it isn't finite and it is continually renewed. And we have to recognize that nature isn't something that is always making, uh, as the neo-Darwinists claim, always making these like rational decisions about how to economically use its energy. Nature is all the time doing too much and going too far and continually creating more and more extravagant things. You know, see... See the tail of the peacock, or I mean anything, butterflies. There's so much variety and so much beauty and so much more than there needs to be if it was simply like the kind of base economic system that ran nature as runs our culture now. So Babylon for me is that, is that is nature in that sense, in this continually outpouring creativity and joy and pleasure. As well as you know, devouring because nature devours itself too. It's uh, it's merciless. There is a a cruelty that is like the cruelty our toe talks about, and a mercilessness and 
but it's not without compassion and it's not without love. So I find in this an entire, an entirely different way to approach life and to interact with, with people, with everything else. And it's not based on the kind of false ideas that we're sort of forced to live under by our economic system or p- political system that we have. It's a, it's revolutionary. <laughs> is that answer? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's really, it's coming back to like aliveness, I think, yes. and where like we have these constructs where hunger and pleasure and like we can be too alive like we is this something Mm. that we've been taught like if you're too alive it will be destructive or if you're too alive there will be punishment and yeah I didn't grow up Catholic but I grew up very Christian and that idea too of there just being like there is an end of the world and I remember Mm. that was it deeply impacted me and it made me very afraid Mm. mostly not that I was going to hell but it made me afraid that I would miss out on life that Mm the world would end before I got to mm. eat all of life that I wanted. Um, yeah. And it makes me cry just talking about it now, but like, that's such a deep it's desire. So fear. Like instilling that kind of fear in a child is criminal really. Yeah. And it's made me really um, like lately I've been doing so much thinking about, I mean, I'm obsessed with time in general and different ways of experiencing and uh, thinking about time, which is hilarious because, you know, as we know, like time isn't really, doesn't really exist, but it exists in our experience. But thinking about time, like what it does if we think of time as a circle instead of a line, if we think of time as the female orgasm instead of the male orgasm, if we yes. think of time as the way nature tells us time is, is that like winter is never the end because spring is always coming. Like there's always a, there's yeah. always another. It's cyclical. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's much, it's, um, especially now because, you know, we have the plague and we have apocalypse and I actually find it's very dangerous to just sort of speak like this because it makes us feel desperate and that nothing can be done and that it's not, and that it's something like some greater schema. I see these terrible things people say like, oh, something is punishing us for some uh, like like when Christians oh say, oh, you're being punished so <laughs> because you did something wrong. You had sex or, so, totally. or something like this. And it's like, it's not that. Like we can, we can change things. I don't know if we can save the environment. I really hope we can, but it will take political will. But I really, really believe that we can't think in this uh, finite way, in this sort of defeatist way. We have to be... And even if everything is ending, we still have to, we can't but bring joy and beauty into the world. Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is a, a rejection of those, those sort of terrible mentality of the Orthodox Christian, not, not Orthodox Christian, but like just this sort of that Christian thinking of punishment and, and finality and... Yeah, it's judgment. Mm. Dance goes against all that. (laughs) It does. Because dance is the body and the body actually goes against that. Yes. Um, We always choose life. Yes. It's um, it's very hard to hurt yourself and you have to be in a lot of like pain emotionally to, to do that. It's not, and 
Yeah, it's like animals. You you see how animals are. We're the same. Like our bodies want to live, and sometimes we are so sick that it's very hard to live. But the feeling of the body is always towards life. Mm-hmm. Life, life wants itself. Life mm. chooses itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in like little chipmunks, like they're like, if my cat brings in a poor little chipmunk that she found, like you can see even in this like tiny little animal that it's like, it wants to stay alive, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's very, I think it's, it's very cellular, that yeah. truth, I think. Yeah. I think, I don't think it's connected to the eye at all. I think sometimes the eye wants to disappear and mm-hmm. and can't take it anymore. But like at a cellular level, we are just desiring life intensely Mm -hmm. yes because on a cellular level it's always reproducing it's that cycle again like it's always Mm -hmm. remaking like even if we can't save the environment we will end and the environment will go on differently you know like there will be a re-happening of something yeah Um, things will continue i i also feel very much that like i said at the beginning with the occulted when I was talking about the occulted body, that there is this pattern in us already so that the egg, when it's fertilized and it's still just like single before it like becomes anything, it already has like a latent pattern. There's still some like sort of electric energetic pattern that tells it what to do. And we don't know where this comes from. So I feel very strongly by doing, by creating things, whatever that is, one is putting, one is making these patterns in the world. One is creating something out of one's body. We, we, we participate in nature in a way that um, I think very few other species do. We really, we also create, we also like imitate nature. We're, we, we're so like it that we, we're always bringing things forth. And we want to. And I think those patterns always exist. I think nothing is ever forgotten in nature. So I know that even if I do a dance once and nobody sees it, that that still will have some resonance that the horror will contain. And if, you know, in 2000 years from now, that might be picked up again and used. I think it's an Indian idea that there's nothing there's nothing new in the world ever. Everything has already existed before at some point and that it's just continually like arising again. And I think one way I do feel to, to challenge the sort of the negativity and the desperation that's so prevalent now is just knowing that every act of creation is, isn't, can't be destroyed. It can't be destroyed. Even if it's, temporary, even if it's transient, like dance, even if it's something which lasts, like I try to make beautiful books that will last with our publishing company, but even so, they might not last more than a hundred years, but I still know that the resonances and the echoes from those books will still be in the world, whatever that world is. And if something is deemed useful by nature, it will come back again. So I don't see that our creative industry or work is in any way for nothing. It just might not be something we ever, ever know about ourselves. Yeah. The impact or the visibility may be for someone, something else or in another world or another yeah. communication. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, time doesn't exist. So 
Exactly. And of course, time isn't real. So (laughs) (laughs) what's a hundred years? A hundred years is forever. What Um, what does it even mean? (laughs) It's true. I think about it. It's all the hours that I spend thinking about it. It's ridiculous (laughs) Um, how obsessed I am with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think dance is the right medium to explore that because it's so temporal. It is. It really is why I've always latched on to it for sure. Because mm. I'm, I always like this, that all perpetual revelation where you realize you're making a dance about life and life is making a dance with you about yeah. itself. And yeah. that just continues to like surprise me yeah. um, when you realize that your life is being your art and vice versa. And that when I, it's like, oh, dance is like life. And that was, um, that keeps feeding me. Mm. Dance is life. It is life. Yeah, they are the same. Um, I think. I think. I think we should end there. I think. Yeah. There were a lot of really beautiful things that you said that I think were really, really timeless, but also pertinent to where we are right now and what we're experiencing. Mm. Um, if we want to follow you find mm-hmm. you, stock your ideas, find <laughs> your books? Where do we do that? Um, I've got a website, um, alkististemek.com, and my publishing company is Scarlet Imprint, scarletimprint.com, where um, um, The Brazen Vessel, which is where you can find my essays, is. Um, there's a digital edition on Amazon as well. Um, and I'm on Instagram and stuff, but I'm just not a very prolific poster, but you can, you can follow me there and I'll try and uh, keep people up with what I'm, what I'm working on and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I'll make sure we post all of those links and things below so people can find them as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here and just for sharing all of your, your beauty and your occultedness and... <laughs> Just like your wisdom and your research, I really appreciate it. It was just a very um, beautiful and like invigorating conversation. Thank thank you. you. It It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a five star review, subscribe to the show, and share the episode. Check out the links below to learn more about things we talked about and find free resources. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please join us inside of the Homebody Portal, a free online community where you can talk more about the episode, learn with us, and connect with others. Let us be in service to life with courage, creativity, and connection. Thank you for being here. Be well. Peace. Peace.